Uh, welcome to the third event of the India-Israel lecture series. Thanks to the Institute of Palestine Studies and Dr. Tariq Mahmoud Ali of the American University in Beirut for organizing this series of events. I am Professor Rinda Kavra. I teach sociology at the University of Warwick and I'll be today's chair. The format of this event, like the others, will be a talk followed by questions and answers. Please type your questions in the Q&A box and we'll address these at the end. I'm really pleased to introduce today's guest, though of course he needs no introduction. Darek Ali is a political activist, commentator, novelist, historian, and essayist. I first heard him speak uh, amongst a large audience at an anti-war meeting in 2003, where he electrified and inspired the audience that was very angry at the invasion of Iraq, and that then led to the largest demonstration in British history. Uh, unfortunately, not enough to stop uh, the bombarding of that country. His prolific activism in campaigning is on par with his uh, writing output. Uh, his most recent books include the wonderfully titled Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes, which has caused much aggravation to the British establishment, uh, no doubt to his great pleasure. Uh, and his other recent works include The Dilemmas of Lenin, uh, The Extreme Centre, um, and he's written numerous books on India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, his most recent being The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold. And it's this wisdom that he will be bringing, well, but that he'll be, alongside all of his other experiences, <coughs> he'll be bringing today to us, to, uh, to the discussion being the India-Israel um, relationship in terms of global geopolitics. So I want to hand over to you, Tarek. Thank you. What I want to talk about today is the links between the two, which are obvious enough, but they're, they're not only two links. Effectively, what we have, if we start in a, a proper way, uh, is to ask the question, what is the structure of the world? And what aspects of that structure determine what is going on in Palestine and Kashmir. The two are not exactly the same. Their origins of the war in Palestine and the war in Kashmir uh, are different, uh, and that has to be understood, but both have things in common, which I want to point out to you. Uh, the withdrawal from India by the British in 1947 created a huge problem uh, as far as Kashmir was concerned. The subcontinent, uh, as we used to call it, South Asia, uh, the, 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 the reason for, for partitioning it according to those who were in favor of that, was that the Muslim majority areas should be permitted a separate state. In the case of Kashmir, because the Kashmiri nationalist leaders were not 100% in favor of this, or let's be blunt, were opposed to it, it was agreed that there would be a referendum in Kashmir to which the Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru agreed, which the United Nations completely supported at the time. And it is the struggle for that referendum which has 
led to a situation which gets worse and worse and worse, and today has resulted in the Indian constitution being violated by the Modi government uh, and um, concessions that were made constitutionally to Kashmir being wrenched back. I'll, I'll return to this in a minute. The case of Palestine is slightly different. In both cases, the British were involved. In the case of Israel, the British were dominant in parts of the Middle East. The complete collapse of the British Empire had not yet taken place, despite their withdrawal from India. And the British um, were in favor of creating a Jewish state in what is was Palestine and dividing, partitioning Palestine as well. One thing worth understanding is that one characteristic of the British Empire was to divide and rule. This isn't a cliche, it's a fact, a geographical fact. Wherever you look, whether it's Central Africa, whether it's South Africa, whether it's East Africa, uh, divide and rule, break up. Uh, tribal federations, tribal confederations, create new states because it becomes easier to rule. Cyprus was the same. Ireland was the same. India was the same. And the Middle East was the same. So there's a pattern. And there's too much coincidence in, uh, to, to say that this is an accident or a coincident. It's not a coincident. It's a very deliberate planning stage decision made by one empire, which is at the same time handing over its responsibilities uh, and its expenses to a new rising empire, which was the United States. But though the United States supported the formation of Israel, it was the British which set the whole thing into motion with the Balfour Declaration in 1917. So these are the origins of the two different crises that we're discussing today. <clears throat> and uh, they have the parentage uh, is the same. Now, let us compare them in terms of what is happening today. We have to be honest amongst ourselves. Uh, and uh, I have supported the cause of the Palestinians for as long as I can remember, and the cause of the uh, Kashmiris uh, very, very firmly since the 80s onwards. The, my demand for Kashmir always has been that the referendum should ask three questions, with India, with Pakistan, or independent, and the independence guaranteed by both India and Pakistan. Of course, this now seems completely utopian. As far as Israel-Palestine is concerned, the first um, plan, as many of you will know, was a fairly equal, not 100% equal, but sort of 50-50 division of the territory into Palestine and Israel. Uh, this was turned down by our side, I have to say, because naturally they felt, why should we give any part of Palestinian territory to a new state, which could only be created with the backing of British imperialism? That's what they said, and on that they were right. But now when we look back, you can at least ask, had they accepted that, would it have been easier? My answer is I doubt it very much. 
Even had they accepted that plan, the Israelis were determined, as numerous Israeli historians are now showing in what they call revisionist history, that the plan was from the very beginning as far as hardcore Zionists were concerned, and even softcore Zionists were concerned, was Greater Israel. That is what the plan was. Both Likud and Labour and forces to their right were determined to do that. And the Palestinians for too long depended on the Arab states to do the business. It was only after the defeat of the Egypt and Syria in 1967, that and, and the blows that were struck against those two armies that within the Palestinian movement began another movement. We will fight for ourselves. We will create our own liberation army. We will take on Israel. We will mobilize our own people. And that was a very important divide in Palestinian consciousness and gradually, uh, not so gradually, but you know, not so fast either, the bulk of the Palestinian population came to support their own leaders, principally the PLO and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And this did have an impact. There can be no doubt about that, that the decision of the Palestinian to take the struggle in their own hands and confront the Israeli occupation, especially now after the Six-Day War, when even more territories of Palestine were occupied, uh, <clears throat> where the West Bank was permanently now under Israeli control and later under direct occupation. And so the war that we are seeing began. The West, it should be said, with the United States now in charge of the empire, the British and French were collapsing. The French would soon lose Vietnam and Algeria. And the examples of Algeria and of Vietnam in 1954 and later had a huge impact on Palestinian national consciousness. The leaders of Palestine, its intellectuals, its activists, its politicians knew perfectly well what was going on in the rest of the world. And the Algerian government in particular was incredibly generous and warm-hearted to giving the Palestinians money, giving them weapons, to do what they had done against the French. So Palestine became part of the global anti-colonial struggle. This is sort of often underestimated by people, but that is what, um, uh, what happened. In the meantime, in Kashmir, despite many efforts, India still refused to accept a referendum. Um, just as a footnote, I was in India in uh, 1973 and met Farooq Abdullah in Delhi, uh, the Kashmiri leader, and I said, what would happen if there was a referendum now, given what the Pakistan army had done to Bangladesh? And Farooq said, Pakistan won't win if it happened now. But nor will India, the more demand would be really for a sort of virtually independent uh, Kashmir. Uh, 
and later I asked question Mrs. Gandhi. I said, you know, you're committed to the, who's then Prime Minister of India. I said, you're committed to a referendum according to the UN, according to what your own father said. You still haven't uh, rejected it. And she shrugged her sh shoulders. I said, Farooq, Abdullah thinks that the Kashmiris are not in a ultra pro-Pakistan mood because of what's happened in Bengal, in East Bengal. And she basically said, Farooq is a, uh, uh, a liar, I don't believe or trust him. Well, okay. Uh, but the the result was growing uh, w w what we could call that Kashmiri culture, usually soft, Sufi-led, very relaxed, became came under the influence of uh, jihadis. And this too, at a later stage, happened with the formation of Hamas in Palestine, uh, a development that was uh, that took place and was at the time actually, uh, for their own vile reasons, uh, supported by the Israelis who wanted to break the hold of the PLO, uh, which they, to a certain extent, succeeded in doing before denouncing Hamas itself as a terrorist group, etc., etc. So we have stirrings from the top, uh, of these societies, the nationalists, official nationalist leaders are getting more and more discredited, both in Kashmir and later on, especially after Oslo in Palestine, and <clears throat> can't be depended on. The Palestinian masses, their courage, their will, their refusal to be disappeared from the face of the Arab world is astonishing, really. They've suffered defeats, they've hit back, they've recovered, attempts been made to break their spirit. And so today uh, we have a situation in Palestine where every single day virtually a Palestinian kid is either locked up, killed, beaten up, tortured, and virtually every second week there is another death reported of a Palestinian citizen, an ordinary person, not even involved in any armed struggle activities, which most of them aren't. They might want to, but they aren't. And the Israelis pick them out, one after the other, and this world in which we live watches can't say anything. You know, compare this. There's another war going on in Europe, in the Ukraine. I mean, the denunciations of Russia, I'm not going to discuss that war now, but I'm just saying make a contrast. The, uh, uh, the propaganda war against Russia, compare that to what's happening in, is in Israel, Palestine, and Kashmir. It's hardly mentioned. Two days ago, the Israelis went and bombed Iran, a, a drone base in Iran, saying they're sending uh, drones to the Ukraine. Then um, uh, trucks carrying medicines to Syria from Iraq were also bombed by the Israelis. So they're the small policemen, effectively the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, um, people who the United States uses 
to carry out actions which they think are better suited to the Israelis than to uh, the Americans doing it themselves. Without American backing, and this should not be forgotten, never be forgotten, without US backing, the Israelis would be in a complete mess. Not just financial backing, but military backing, political backing, ideological backing, and spiritual backing. Because the enemy now is defined both by Modi and by the United States and the Zionist leadership as Muslims. Muslim terrorism. Terrorism equals Islam. Islam uh, is the problem. Uh, and in order to do this, they have really whitewashed a whole number of things, uh, uh, including in terms of what is going on in Europe, etc. So that is the situation uh, that we are in. I mean, the Indian government, both Congress and Modi, you know, we have to be aware of this. This did not begin simply with Narendra Modi. Uh, and his uh, ultra-right-wing government, it began during the Congress days. And effectively, the discipline which the Indian army was given the green light to enforce was the discipline of torture and death, of disappearances, of rapes, of, of digging mass graves so that the evidence is buried underneath. So <clears throat> that uh, has been carrying on. It's been cut down a bit because of other measures being taken. Uh, I'll just end with this section on, Kash on Kashmir first. I mean, basically now what the Indian government has decided is to utilize Indian capitalism and uh, Modi's bunch of crooks who surround him, businessmen, etc., to go into Kashmir. They've abolished the laws which said that no buildings, no lands can be sold to uh, non-Kashmiris because that was the obvious way the founders of the constitution uh, knew uh, would be used to try and uh, take Kashmiris out of the equation altogether. But that is now happening. And they are hoping, that is their hope, uh, we have to be very uh, blunt about this, that opening up Kashmir to capitalism under a Hindutva government will create more jobs, will create more employment, will isolate the uh, guerrilla fighters uh, in Kashmir, and hopefully within 10 years the problem will be over. And that is why the most recent proposal from Modi to the Pakistan army was the following. This is when Imran Khan was still in power. They said, okay, let's do a deal, an overall deal. Open up our borders to trade, no restrictions on trade, ease travel restrictions, start playing cricket matches again, provided Pakistan agrees not to mention or raise Kashmir in any international forum whatsoever. If you want to discuss Kashmir, let's make it a bilateral issue. The Pakistan army, according to reports I've read, 
was prepared to do this. Uh, Imran vetoed it and said, no, we can't betray the Kashmiri people. To what extent he meant this, only he knows. But that was the last thing that happened, I think, last year, uh, this proposal came. Now on Israel-Palestine, as I said <clears throat> earlier, this um, solution is now, the, 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 the two-state solution has come to an end. And only fantasists really believe in it. Some in a very cynical way because they know it won't happen and others because they've got nothing else to offer. In my opinion, the Oslo Accords were a total and complete disaster for the Palestinian people. And as the late Edward Said used to say, ever since it's the Treaty of Versailles for the Palestinians, what happened? in Oslo in the 90s, and it has wrecked the resistance movement. It has divided the uh, people who were prior to that all agreed on one thing to create their own state. And this degree of collaboration between the PLO and the Israeli state has meant that Palestinians are arrested by this pseudo-fake Palestinian government and either locked up or handed over to the Israelis if they so demand. So the level of collaboration between the old-style nationalists in both Kashmir and in the Middle East, in Palestine, uh, Israel, is beyond, beyond belief. I mean, I know we shouldn't be surprised by anything, but they have struck a terrible blow against their own people and these gulf states now being forced by the united states to recognize israel to open trade relations uh, jordan is virtually uh, i have said this in public before in the middle east uh, jordan is effectively a american israeli uh, colony the Iraqi Kurdistan, very heavily involved with Israel and with the um, United States. So they have succeeded to a certain extent. And admitting this is necessary because without understanding uh, and seeing what is actually going on on the ground, it is very difficult to develop a strategy for the way forward. Now, I, together with many others, uh, uh, have been arguing for a long time that there should be a single state solution in Palestine, Israel, a single state uh, with a single constitution for all its citizens, whether they are Jews, Muslims, uh, uh, Christians, um, and a democratic state. Uh, not an apartheid state, where this, which initially when we raised it, I think Barghouti and Edward Said first raised it from the Palestinian side in public as intellectuals, um, and many of us backed them up and have been debating it. Uh, I remember I was at a seminar in Barcelona with uh, Shlomo Benami, who had just resigned as Israeli foreign minister, and over lunch afterwards, he said, well, what's your alternative? The Spanish Foreign Office guy said, well, do you agree with Tariq Ali? And Shlomo Ben-Ami said, it's very difficult to think of another solution. I was really taken aback. I, he said a single state is now virtually impossible. <clears throat> and 
we now know this. So that is the ultimate solution. The Zionist regime, and now we have to say that this is not an ordinary Zionist regime. I mean, they all share a great deal in common, but the particular people in power in Israel are, are semi-fascists, if not open fascists. And, you know, this notion that you can't be a fascist if you're a Jew uh, was always wrong. Uh, prior to the Holocaust, during the Judeo side of the Second World War, we could say that. Now we can't say that. Of course, it's perfectly possible for right-wing Jews to behave like fascists, and they don't mind if you say that to them. They know what, what they're doing. It's the most extreme right-wing government they've had, and Netanyahu is still being treated and greeted as if he was some sort of a decent entity. He isn't. He's a disgraceful thug. That is what he is, not even an ordinary politician. So the West watches, and it's these double standards of the West that drive people crazy all over the world, not just uh, in Palestine or the Arab world, but everywhere, because people can see it. And this has been brought home by the war in the Ukraine, that white lives, the lives of white people with blue eyes and blonde hair are worth more than the Yemenis, the Palestinians, the Somalis, etc., 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 wherever wars are being uh, fought. So it's a dangerous situation. And in this situation, all we can do is of course fight with our pens, our voices, do whatever we can. But ultimately, the answer will be decided by the Palestinian people and by the people of Kashmir. Um, thanks very much, Derek. Very emotive and very clear. I, I just wanted to ask you. I mean, we'll, we'll get. We'll ask people to put their questions in the Q and A as well. But I just wanted to ask you a little bit about why you think at this point in time. The uh, Indian state and the Israeli state seem to be kind of more collaborative, you know, more in, 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 in a kind of closer arrangement or closer dialogue with each other. I, like, I, I, you know, my father's passport, Indian passport, he wasn't allowed, he, on his Indian passport, it says no travel to Israel and no travel to South Africa. <coughs> and so our post-colonial states, uh, India, Pakistan, they were very resolutely saw these issues in terms of, uh, in terms of decolonization, you know, in terms of the unfinished business of colonialism, and yet it seems now that this whole, you know, we, we, what, you know, what's the kind, what, what is the geopolitical benefits, if you like, for states like India to normalize with Israel, and equally, why is Israel kind of quite very keen, right, with Modi, especially, but you know, it's been going on for a while. They have a common enemy, Muslims. Uh, the BJP government uh, in India, leaving aside Kashmir, I mean, that is a special problem for them, uh, are openly hostile to Muslims. There have been pogroms of Muslims. Uh, Modi was chief minister of Gujarat uh, when hundreds and hundreds of Muslims were killed in a pre-orchestrated pogrom. Um, the remarks made by the BJP leaders and this poisonous uh, ideology is now slowly entering Bollywood. You see references to it in many Indian movies that are being made in Indian culture as a whole, largely but not exclusively 
uh, in the north. I mean, in Bengal, the uh, Congress, the Trinakul Congress have held them back. In Kerala, they haven't been able to succeed totally. Uh, and the same in other southern Indian states. But if once you move northwards, the grip of the BJP in Uttar Pradesh and other states is very strong. And he has 70% support, according to most opinion polls, including those carried out by people who don't like him. Uh, that's the first point. The second point is India is a country without a national political opposition. The Congress party collapsed, you know, ignominiously. They couldn't fight back. They began to cave in trying to win more votes by repeating a softened version of the same rhetoric. Rahul Gandhi, the leader of the Congress, said only a few days ago that Modi is not being tough enough on China, appealing to the United States, trust us, we will be tougher on China this, than this Indian government. So a party like that, which believes in nothing except power, can't do very much. So the Israelis and Indians now, the uh, <clears throat> Indian government called in Israeli advisors, both military and political, to discuss Kashmir. Uh, and when the terrorists who led the attack on Mumbai several years ago were asked, why did you kill Israelis? They said, because they're in Kashmir. That's why we did it. Because you know, no, nothing justifies that attack. But I'm just explaining that these things are sometimes known to people who want to know, but not known to, but not to others. This does mark a break in India's traditional Middle Eastern policy, which was always very pro-Arab nationalists. When, for instance, in 1956, the French and British ganged up together with Israel and tried to occupy Egypt because Egypt had nationalized the Suez Canal, taken it away from the West, uh, and they wanted a regime change uh, and had to be stopped by the United States, who saw the danger in that from their particular interests. Uh, and uh, the Nasser stayed in power and became a hero all over the Arab world. That very, and India supported the Egyptians. Uh, uh, verbally, ideologically, Nehru soon visited Cairo. And the, that year, more children were named Jawaharlal in Egypt than any other name. That's on one level, uh, you, you have it. Uh, and by the way, just to remind people who don't know, Pakistan and its government backed the British in what they were doing in the Middle East at that time. I remember my very first demonstration as a school kid was in 56, when half of Lahore came out to march against the invasion. And that's when we felt wish we had someone like Nehru as Prime Minister of Pakistan, rather than a total colonialist stooge. Uh, which we did. So it's not that the whole of Asia, India was for the Arab nationalists, Pakistan was not. That has now completely, uh, <clears throat> completely uh, been uh, turned upside down because of the changes that have taken place. The, and don't need to go into those. And so Modi, and I bet you any other representative of the Indian ruling elite who comes to power after him will carry on maintaining this friendship with Israel because they have a lot to learn from and give each other.
it, it, I mean, do you think this is also just a way of asserting um, deference to the US? Is, is this also Without like, any doubt. Or do they need to or not need to? Yeah, well, look, the Indians are not Israel in that sense. The Indian government, whatever its complexion, is still perfectly capable of taking an independent position if it so wishes. And um, for instance, to give you an example, a recent example, on the Ukraine, a majority of the United Nations states uh, voted against sanctions against Russia or abstained, including India. So India did not fall into line with the United States on that. The links with Israel are, as I've explained, have different uh, have different uh, roots, and the same goes uh, to China, which didn't back the United States. So effectively, how the United States is operating now in its so-called struggle for hegemony. The way it's operating now is to say to all these states, you leave the world to us and just follow us. And there is no such thing as sovereignty. I mean, look at these European states. Is Britain a sovereign state? Is Germany a sovereign state? None of them are sovereign states. NATO is the instrument which is used to dragoon them behind the United States whenever they need to. I mean, Bush was very clear on that. He said, look, we don't even want to force people to fight for us. When we want, uh, we can get a vote at the Security Council. If not, we can try NATO. If not, we can go it alone. So he showed, showed complete contempt before launching the attack on Iraq. Now the United States don't want to be too isolated. They themselves have divisions. You know, if you read between the lines, the Pentagon generals were opposed to sending US tanks into the Ukraine because they know it's a grotesque escalation of the war. Instead of trying to end it, you escalate that war and was, were overruled by Biden Joe Biden and the politicians. So the United States, if it wished to, certainly could bring the Israeli business to an end fairly rapidly. Um, and I mean, at the very least, they could say to the Israelis, if you don't get out of the territories you occupied in 67, okay, uh, we are going to impose sanctions. How would Israel last? How long would it last? Uh, it's it's never it's not going to happen. Though interestingly enough, uh, the opinion polls within the United States are showing that large numbers of U.S. Uh, young generations of U.S. Jews say that their loyalty, first loyalty, is to the United States. Some say we don't have any second loyalties, but gradually about 40 to 45% now in opinion polls are saying we don't support Israel. And that over the next 20 years will create some problems, but we will see. I mean, effectively, the Israelis have built the sixth largest and strongest military force now in the world and mimic the United States, but they have to do it nine times out of 10 with the permission of the United States. Like Britain, Germany, and they can't do it alone. They're a complete, India is not exactly the same. If it wanted to, it could interfere. I mean, it doesn't, or it's stopped. 
with Nepal or the you know border states. They're all Bangladesh. They don't have to ask permission, but they have not. They have not done so. Neither under the Congress, nor nor under Modi. Okay. Should we we can turn to questions? So, if the audience would like to put their questions, we've got a couple of questions. I don't know if you can see them, Tarek, or you want me to read them. I, I, I'm, I've got the questions up, but uh, I don't see any coming up. Have they come? I'll, I'll, read the, I'll read the two questions that have come. So there's one from an anonymous attendee who says that, do you think that sanctions against the Indian state along the lines of BDS will help push uh, for the, would be useful for the Kashmiri cause? Uh, look. The difference here is the following. India is a huge state, you know, just in terms of sanctions. The, its geography, it, it's a sort of incredibly large state. It has links with capitalism, intercapitalist links all over the world. I'm in favor of it, by the way, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying it won't necessarily be as effective as uh, the BDS has been. The BDS against Israel has been so effective that it's now they've been forced to resort to this absurd business of um, saying that if you call for BDS, you're an anti-Semite because you're threatening Israel, which shows that they feel threatened by that. It could be tried against India. I'm not 100% convinced it will be as... Uh, as effective. I think that with the Indian state, what they fear, what they want removed is any attempt to globalize the issue. And that is what the opposition to Indian terror in Kashmir uh, <clears throat> should really be, um, be, be trying to do. I mean, you know, the effects are quite horrific. I mean, between 1989 and 2009, 70,000 deaths in Kashmir, 8,000 disappearances, thousands of disappeared people, untold numbers of rape of women, Kashmiri Muslim women who don't report them for reasons of honor, and so their own families won't throw them out, let's be clear. So all this material is there and some very courageous uh, Indians, Anjana Chatterjee in particular on the West Coast and Arundhati Roy uh, in, in India itself and many others uh, have been trying to do, to do their best and uh, we should give them support. What the Kashmiri movement is going to do now is an open question because, you know, militarily, I'm afraid they have suffered huge defeats. And how to pull out of their defeats, you have to think of, uh, of, uh, of different strategies. It's not my position in my position to give them advice. In the case of Palestinian friends, we can, as you know, uh, give sort of advice because we know the situation much better. And we've seen what's happened with the 1970, 1993 Oslo Accords. Palestine has effectively been destroyed as a political entity, in my opinion. The Palestinian Authority is a joke. It has no authority whatsoever, none. It basically carries out the instructions of the IDF. In Kashmir, you can say the same thing. 
to a certain extent about Farouk Abdullah's uh, dynasty and some of the other dynasties which uh, participate. And I think within Kashmir, I will just offer this in, I hope no one misunderstands, I may be wrong, but I would say that the first task would be is to ask all the Kashmiri parties to stop participating in elections to the Indian Parliament, just boycott it. Let the Kashmiri places be left empty. Just insist on a Kashmiri assembly uh, and uh, you know function in that. This will cause a huge debate because a lot of the so-called Kashmiri nationalist leaders who have been collaborating with the Indian government in a different way, pleading with them, uh, Farooq Abdullah every national day in india used to be put on the flat platform during the congress uh, uh, to sing iqbal's old poem hindustan hamara but you know the time for that is is gone now you have to change your tactics and uh, you have to at least plan some political strategy and of course even these politicians bourgeois politicians will suffer when they do it but they have to give some lead to their people um, I, I was going to just encourage the audience to ask some more questions. Please put them in, put it in the Q&A box. Uh, we have one question um, from a comrade named Malik. Um, I kind of think I know what he wants to say, but I'll, I'll read the question. So uh, he's saying, uh, is Pakistan with its economic, political and environmental crisis uh, going on, ongoing, where, where the military is much weaker than it has ever been, do you think there, that this is part of a strategy for isolating Iran. So potentially looking at the breaking up of somewhere like Pakistan, where you, so you have Iran isolated from the East and West with Israel from the West and India through Pakistan from the East. So kind of like, is there is there a bulk, you know, is there kind of some grander, grander <laughs> strategy at play in which Iran being seen as the, the kind of main you know, the axis of resistance uh, Iran, uh, Lebanon, Syria, that kind of isolating those three countries. I think that's what Naim's saying. He'll tell yeah. me off if, no, I'm, I, if I'm wrong. I've just read the question now. So. Yeah. Um, I, I can see it. In my opinion, not. I don't think that the Indian state wants a war with Pakistan. If anything, they want some negotiated settlement where which accepts India's hegemony in the region. And they want the Pakistanis to offer the Pakistanis deals, uh, but not on Kashmir. On Kashmir, they say, withdraw all your cases in international tribunals, etc., etc., uh, and then we'll sit down and talk. But even if Pakistan doesn't, I don't think a war between the two countries is very likely. There are two big reasons for this. The first reason is that they are both nuclear powers. And the United States and other powers will not permit China, for instance, uh, a nuclear war uh, on their borders. Uh, and, you know, even the most stupid politician in these countries, and there are quite a few, uh, will not uh, be able to argue for a nuclear war. 
finish off the Muslims, finish off the Hindus. That is not going to happen. And that is the fact, whether we like it or not, of both countries having nuclear weapons. The second thing is this, that Pakistan has close links with the United States. One should never forget that. And even though these have been weakened in recent years, they are still there. And in addition, Pakistan now has or has had for a long time close military links and trade deals with the Chinese. The Chinese have now virtually built a cantonment or a city in in Gwadar in Balochistan, and uh, so any attempt to wipe Pakistan off or divide it further is not going to work. We are now living in a very, very different uh, period. Um, so that's uh, as far as that war is concerned. Iran is slightly different. The Israelis have been itching to destroy Iran because they believe secretly that Iran has got some nuclear weapons. And that is what their intelligence people claim, but they don't say it in private because there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. But it, what is true is that Iran has the capacity to, to, to build a nuclear bomb very rapidly. And which is why the is real reason why the Israelis want to completely weaken the uh, grip of the Iranian army in their own country. And the second thing, of course, with Iran is that by the way it's behaving towards its own people, its own population, especially its uh, women, it has weakened the regime. The, 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 the clerics themselves are divided as to how to deal with the internal situation. So it would be a good time to strike, but it a strike by the Israelis against Iran, were it to be done, the Iranians will respond in kind. They're not just going to sit back. They've been waiting for this as well. They know the Israelis want to do this. And whether their army, I mean, they have signed long pacts, oil deals with the Chinese as well. So any expansion and extension of the wars either in South Asia or in West Asia are bound to make the global situation very, very critical indeed. Uh, so we've got another question which is asking about whether the India-Israel relationship was inevitable given Hindu nationalists like Savrakar have historically supported Zionism. Or is the newfound context with Israel's normalization in the Middle East and other wider factors of the material relationship? So what's yeah, the kind of I, yeah, I, I see the question. I think it is a sector. I mean, what Savarka thought about Zionism at that time is uh, neither here nor there. You know, it's. Uh, uh, we knew, we've known this for ages. The point is that Savarka's party now. Uh, is in power and that he historically supported it, they will use to improve their relations with the right-wing uh, Israelis. Uh, but um, I, I think it is a newfound context. And I think the attempt to normalize Israel. I mean, I remember at one stage, Khurshid Mahmoud Kasuri, who was then foreign minister of Pakistan during Musharraf's dictatorship, was forced to shake hands with the Israeli foreign minister uh, just to show goodwill or to show we are, you know, not your enemies. And um, 
I ran into Khurshid after that at a dinner and I said, uh, be careful because the hand that shook hands with the serpent might well be lopped off by someone. And he said, you're making jokes as you usually do, but I'm really scared. <laughs> and and uh, so he said, I, we had to do it because of the nuclear question. Meaning Israel sees Pakistani nuclear weapons as some, as a, sees Pakistan as a country with nuclear weapons, which could easily supply them to Iran, for instance, or to a country closer to Israel. So the handshake had to uh, take place. Um, there is uh, the third question is from Roshin Jackson. Uh, you outline the theoretical linkages between and there is open solidarity, but is there material political collaboration? Okay. Well, you know, there isn't, a, as I've said, there is a collaboration uh, between uh, the Israelis and the Indian government, which is political, ideological and uh, uh, military. Uh, we absolutely uh, know that. So the answer to that question is yes, and it's, it, it's quite open. It's referred to publicly in the Indian press. Uh, yeah, we'll be. I mean, we we're we'll looking. We're going to do one of the t uh, a talk in this series, looking at the arms trade, and kind of technical expertise between India and Israel. And there's been a massive increase in yeah. arms arms trade between yes, uh, uh, India and Israel. Just, I mean, ex just exponential. Yeah. No. Uh, on, on this. Yeah. Well, as I said earlier, on this question, India has made a complete about turn. It has abandoned. Uh, its solidarity with the Arab countries, though these are many Arab countries are abandoning solidarity with themselves by playing the American game. So um, that has completely changed. Mm. So there's another question. Will, will, really... There's a question from Siddiqui. Yeah, which, are uh, you as... asking about the current uh, Pakistani government? Where, whether if, if the PTI government you, as you said, didn't take the Indian bait of burying Kashmir. Is the present Pakistan government more likely to uh, take this, the the current coalition government, more likely to accept like an Indian offer of uh, hiding Palestine and Kashmir's issues? Well, to be fair, the Indian government hasn't asked Pakistan not to, to speak on Palestine. It's just Kashmir they're interested in. And only two days ago, I think, uh, Shahbaz Sharif, the prime minister, attacked, uh, uh, or three days ago, attacked the killings of eight Palestinians uh, in Jerusalem. He said this is unacceptable. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's verbal, but at least it's still there since many countries in the world have stopped doing it even verbally. Where are the attacks on Muslims in India going? Uh, the aim of this government is really to keep the Muslim population of India, which compared to the Hindu majority is really very small you know, uh, is to keep them under pressure, to force them in some cases with inducements to reconvert because they don't accept 
that any Muslim is a proper Muslim because they were all converted from Hinduism. I mean, this is such a grotesque joke now that it's that that any serious politician can come up with uh, stuff like this. I mean, uh, you know, you feel like saying to Modi, you know, get your own people under uh, control and. <clears throat> Anyway, I won't go on. I know too much about that wretched uh, regime. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, we don't know how it's going to end. And my big fear is that, uh, my big fear is that even if there's an alternative government, a Congress led, a coalition led by Congress, which doesn't look likely at the moment, but if there is such a, a government, they will not change their policies substantially. I mean, you have in India two different uh, consensuses. After the Indian independence, the consensus was neutral India, creating a global non-aligned movement, uh, nationalization of factories, state uh, encouraging subsidies to build new factories, etc., etc., etc. The Modi consensus, and even before him, under various Congress administrations, they had completely abandoned any talk of a social democratic Congress party like the Labour Party in Britain. They'd abandoned that, they'd moved to neoliberalism, let people suffer, let the rich get richer. And Modi has now taken this on in a very big way. I mean, Gautam Adani, who is the rogue, who basically runs Modi financially, whose private planes fly Modi to Davos and every other conference, the son, and who's now being charged with corruption and fraud by uh, uh, an outfit in Germany. Uh, these people are in control. I mean, the... <clears throat> And privately, they joke, we're not only in control of India, we control Britain as well. Because uh, ha -ha, they say it, they laugh openly. They say Sunak is uh, uh, our boy, uh, Suela and Preeti Patel was a supporter of the BJP. So we have, we, we control our own government, obviously, but we have a strong influence in the British government too, because it's uh, right wing. Um, so um, we shall see what happens. I mean, history, look, uh, we shouldn't get too demoralized. History is unpredictable. Sometimes things happen which nobody believes could happen and everything changes. My big worry about India uh, is that there is no serious opposition party. I mean, uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi and his sister Priyanka recently made a so-called tour, walking tour of parts of the country. They visited Kashmir and they showed that both sides are equal, going to a Hindu temple named after a pundit and then going to Hazrat Baal, where relic of the prophet is in both holy places, one for the Hindus and one for the Sikhs. But you know, Kashmir is not a religious war for God's sake. You know, why create this feeling as if it's a Hindu versus Sikh? Well, no, it's a state, a war against a small state by the Indian state. Uh, that's what it is. And the case in Palestine is that the Israelis, you know, I was once uh, 
debating an Israeli right-wing MP in London. And I, you know, I, I really did uh, hammer him in, in, in public. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, you know, we could kill all the Palestinians if you wanted. Just like that. So I said, thank you so much for not killing us. You don't know how grateful we are. My Palestinian friends are so grateful for not killing all of, etc., etc." He got embarrassed. He said, I, I, it slipped out of my mouth. I said, I know. But that's what you think. So uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the disregard for human life in Palestine and Kashmir uh, is so horrific. They don't care whether it's children or women, whether the killings are done in public. In Israel, the Israeli soldiers boast as they're targeting uh, Palestinian uh, 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 children. It's young Palestinian boys they specially target. Why? It's genocidal. It's genocidal, hoping that we can keep the population down. Uh, because they know in 10, 15, 20 years, the uh, Palestinian Arabs will constitute uh, a majority in the whole place, quite clearly, including in what is actually Israel today. So they are nervous, but you know, killing everyone is uh, is not going to work. Well, let's hope it isn't. That some people, some governments in the Arab world, I mean, someone's just asked, why don't the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia support the Palestinian cause in the substantive? Why should they? They were created by the United States. The Zionist uh, U.S. alliance, it was predated by the Wahhabi U.S. alliance and the Wahhabi-British alliance. It was the British and the Americans who kept the Wahhabis in power. They're not even, or they weren't, I hope they still aren't, a majority in Saudi You know, there is, for instance, a substantial Shia minority in Saudi Arabia, which no one talks about. So they're not interested in that. Effectively, they're interested in money, making money, doing what is necessary to keep the Americans on site. I think we've come to an end uh, for the questions, and I think I'm being told that we've also come to an end for our time. Um, I really want to thank uh, Tarek Ali, and I think the audience would as well join in thanking you for this really illuminating talk. Um, I think the solidarity between Palestine and Kashmir that has arisen really in the last 20 years or so, but has become much more visible, uh, we're seeing in the diasporas, um, is really important to do, to precisely highlight the, the, the real, the, the deep atrocities that these states uh, commit on, uh, on, on peoples who uh, resist and oppose them really. Um, and so I, again, once, uh, once again, want to say thank you to Tarek for this illuminating talk. And we please look out on the IPS website for uh, further talks in this series. Thank you.